Thank you for standing by. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Boeing Company's first quarter 2017 earnings conference call. Today's call is being recorded. The management discussion and slide presentation, plus the analyst and media question and answer sessions, are being broadcast live over the Internet. At this time, for opening remarks and introductions, I'm turning the call over to Mr. Troy Lahr, Vice President of Investor Relations for the Boeing Company. Mr. Lahr, please go ahead. Thank you and good morning. Welcome to Boeing's first quarter 2017 earnings call. I'm Troy Lahr and with me today is Dennis Mullenberg, Boeing's Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer, and Greg Smith, Boeing's Chief Financial Officer. After management comments, we'll take your questions. In fairness to others on the call, we ask that you limit yourself to one question. We've provided detailed financial information in today's press release, and you can follow the broadcast and presentation through our website at Boeing.com. Before we begin, I need to remind you that any projections and goals in our discussion today are likely to involve risk, which is detailed in our news release, various SEC filings, and the forward-looking statement disclaimer in the presentation. In addition, we refer you to our earnings release and presentation for disclosures and reconciliation of non-GAAP measures that we use when discussing our results and outlook. Now I'll turn the call over to Dennis Mullenberg. Thank you, Troy, and good morning. My comments today will focus on our first quarter results, the ongoing health of our business environment, and our growth plans going forward. After that, Greg will walk you through the details of our financial results and outlook. Now let's move to slide two. Boeing delivered first quarter 2017 financial results that included higher core earnings per share and strong operating cash flow. We also continued to execute a balanced cash deployment strategy of investing in innovation, growth, and our people, and returning cash to our shareholders. In the first quarter, we generated $2.1 billion of operating cash, repurchased $2.5 billion of Boeing stock, and increased our dividend per share 30% for a payout of $868 million. Revenue in the first quarter was $21 billion on timing of commercial and defense deliveries and services. Core earnings per share of $2.01 were driven by a continued strong operating performance on production programs and services and a lower-than-expected tax rate. Now let's look at the first quarter operating performance for both of our businesses. At Boeing Commercial Airplanes, we delivered 169 new jetliners and added 198 net new orders worth $15 billion. BCA generated solid results in the first quarter with revenue of $14.3 billion and operating margins of 8.5%. Key milestones in the quarter included the FAA certifying the 737 MAX 8 for commercial service and achieving first flight on the 787-10 one month earlier than the development schedule we established three years ago. And furthermore, in April, we also achieved first flight on the 737 MAX 9. Boeing Defense Space and Security reported first quarter revenue of $6.5 billion. Operating margins were a healthy 11.3%, reflecting continued strong operating performance. Our defense and space business booked orders totaling $12 billion, including a $3.4 billion contract from the U.S. Army for 268 H-64 Apache helicopters. Also during the quarter, we booked a $2.2 billion contract for 17 P-8 Poseidon aircraft and a $2.1 billion order for 15 additional KC-46 tanker aircraft from the U.S. Air Force. With approximately 1,600 flight hours completed, we continue to make steady progress towards completing tanker development. 
The program did see additional cost growth to incorporate changes into the initial production aircraft and solidify production configuration stability. That said, we continue to close out technical risks and progress towards final certification as we remain focused on delivering the first 18 tankers to the U.S. Air Force by early 2018. In summary, thanks to a concerted team effort throughout the company, we delivered another quarter of solid operating performance, captured noteworthy additions to our large and diverse backlog, and returned significant cash to our shareholders. With that, let's turn to the business environment on slide three. Global demand for our market-leading products and services remains generally healthy across our key business segments. Specifically for the commercial airplane market, we still see solid airline profitability and strong passenger traffic that continues to outpace global GDP. According to the International Air Transport Association, the 8.8% year-to-date passenger traffic growth adjusted for the leap year is well above the long-term average of 5.5%. And with the recovery in global trade, we are now seeing modest improvements in cargo traffic. These favorable industry trends, combined with our robust backlog of more than 5,700 aircraft, underpin our planned production rate increases over the remainder of this decade. In the narrow body market, we are seeing strong demand, as illustrated by the 167 net orders we captured in the first quarter. Our high confidence in increasing 737 production to 57 per month by 2019 is based on our existing backlog of more than 4,500 aircraft and a production skyline that is oversold through the end of the decade. Furthermore, the strength of this market segment has given us increased assurance for sustaining that production rate with market pressure to go even higher than 57 per month. It is also important to note that within our top 20 narrow-body customers, we continue to see a large capacity for additional orders when we compare existing order totals to their overall fleet size. In the wide-body market, as we've noted before, we are seeing varying levels of near-term demand across aircraft models. However, over the next 20 years, we forecast the need for more than 9,000 wide-body aircraft underpinned by a meaningful upturn in replacement demand early in the next decade. Indicative of this overall long-term demand is the first quarter's announcement that Singapore Airlines intends to purchase 20 777-9s and an additional 19 787-10s. Triple seven production for 2017 is now sold out. And for the current generation triple seven, our backlog at quarter end was 124 airplanes. Production continues at the seven per month rate before we lower to the production rate in August to five per month as previously announced. That will result in triple seven deliveries of approximately 3.5 per month in 2018 and 2019 as we transition production to the triple seven X. At that rate, we are about 90% sold out for both years, including airplanes covered in the agreement with Iran Air, and we continue to have numerous campaigns underway. While we clearly have more work to do to fill the remaining 777 production slots, based on the current sales environment, we believe the rate plan we put in place establishes a production floor for the program. And we have a strong foundation of 340 777X orders and commitments that support our plan for ramping up production and delivery of the new 777X. Our 787 Dreamliner program also stands on a strong foundation for long-term production with approximately 700 firm orders and commitments in our backlog. 
As you know, we have a concerted effort in place to secure additional 787 orders to support the 14-per-month production rate plan for the end of the decade. We will remain disciplined, as our team is, in the process of assessing our 787 production rate options and timing, with a focus, as always, on ensuring supply and demand are kept in balance as we continue to grow profitability of the program. Importantly, our 2017 financial guidance bounds the range of outcomes from these scenarios, and we continue to see cash flows growing annually over the remainder of the decade, largely driven by higher 737 deliveries and improving 787 profitability. Now, turning to defense, space, and security, we continue to see solid demand for our major platforms and programs. The President's FY18 defense budget request calls for healthy growth in military spending. Additionally, we are seeing the potential for FY17 funding increases on numerous Boeing programs, including the Apache, the F-18 Super Hornet, P-8 Poseidon, and the V-22 Osprey. International demand for our offerings remains high as well, in particular for rotorcraft, commercial derivatives, fighters, satellites, and services. We have now cleared congressional notification regarding the foreign military sales of 48 Chinooks to Saudi Arabia, 37 Apaches to the UAE, and the government of Norway recently signed a foreign military sale agreement with the U.S. government for five P-8 Poseidon aircraft. International interest in our fighters also continues to be strong, with the government of Canada releasing a letter of request for the sale of 18 F-18 Super Hornets. In addition, Kuwait and Qatar fighter sales are progressing. We continue to invest in areas that are priorities for our customers, such as commercial derivatives, rotorcraft, satellites, services, human space exploration, and autonomous systems. Much of that investment supports the priority we have placed on capturing future franchise programs, where we are leveraging capabilities and technologies across the enterprise for JSTAR's recapitalization, ground-based strategic deterrent, advanced weapons programs, and other important opportunities like the unmanned carrier-based MQ-25A and the TX trainer. Moving to services, we remain on track to begin operating our fully integrated Boeing Global Services business in the third quarter. We believe the 10-year, $2.5 trillion services market is a major growth opportunity for us, and standing up Boeing Global Services will sharpen our focus on it and accelerate our capabilities expansion across all services and support areas from our traditional parts, modification, and upgrade businesses to bolstering our suite of data analytics and information-based services. Digital aviation services are a compelling and growing segment of offerings for us. For example, during the first quarter, we signed a contract with Etihad Airways for our wind update solution, which will increase airplane efficiencies and reduce fuel consumption. We now have 13 commercial customers subscribing to this service covering a fleet of more than 1,000 airplanes. On the defense services side, we were awarded a 10-year engineering services contract by the U.S. Air Force Materiel Command, and we captured a five-year F-15 performance-based logistics services contract with the Republic of Korea. In summary, we continue to execute on our efforts to meet or exceed our commitments to our stakeholders while accelerating productivity improvements and making investments in innovation. With that, I'll now turn it over to Greg for our financial results. Thanks, Dennis. Good morning, everybody. Let's turn to slide four, and we'll discuss our first quarter results. 
As expected, first quarter revenue decreased to $21 billion, reflecting the timing of deliveries, while core earnings per share increased 16% to $2.01, driven by solid operating performance and lower-than-expected tax rate, which more than offset the impact of lower volume and cost growth on our tanker program. Let's move to slide five, and we'll discuss commercial airplanes. For the first quarter, our commercial airplane business reported revenue of $14.3 billion, reflecting timing of deliveries and 737 MAX production, where entry into service is expected to begin in May. Operating margins in the quarter were 8.5% due to improved performance on production programs offset by the impact of lower volume, delivery mix, and again, additional tanker program costs. As Dennis indicated earlier, BCA captured $15 billion in net orders during the first quarter, and backlog remains very strong, $417 billion, more than 5,700 aircraft, again equating to more than seven years of production. On the 787 program, the deferred production balance continues its downward trend with a decrease of $316 million in the quarter. And again, over the long term, we continue to focus on improving 787 cash generation driven by favorable delivery mix, internal productivity improvements, and additional supplier step-down pricing. Let's now move to defense, space, and security results on slide six. <clears throat> First quarter revenue at our defense business was $6.5 billion, and operating margins were a solid 11.3% largely driven by strong performance at Boeing military aircraft and global services and support business. Boeing military aircraft first quarter revenue declined to $2.6 billion, reflecting the planned wind-down of the C-17 program and timing and mix on in-production aircraft deliveries. Operating margins at 12.2% reflect solid overall performance. Network and Space Systems reported revenue of $1.6 billion. Operating margins were 6.3%, driven by lower satellite service volume and investments in development efforts. Global Services and Support revenue was $2.3 billion, reflecting timing on contracts, and operating margins of 13.6% reflect solid execution across the portfolio. Defense Space and Security reported a solid backlog of $63 billion, with 34% of that business from customers outside the United States. Let's turn now to cash flow on slide seven. Operating cash flow of $2.1 billion for the first quarter was driven by solid operating performance and favorable timing of receipts and expenditures. With regards to capital deployment, as Dennis mentioned, we paid $868 million in dividends and repurchased 14.9 million shares for $2.5 billion in the first quarter. Our continued cash deployment efforts reflect our ongoing confidence in the long-term outlook for our business. We continue to anticipate completing the remaining $11.5 billion repurchase authorization over approximately the next two years. And since 2012, we've increased our dividend per share by 190% and have repurchased 189 million shares. Again, returning cash to shareholders along with continued investment to support future growth remains prior, top priority for us. Let's move down to cash and debt balances on slide eight. We ended the quarter with $9.2 billion of cash and marketable securities. This cash position 
continues to provide us flexibility to invest in our growth efforts and our people while also returning cash to our shareholders. Let's turn now to slide nine and we'll discuss our outlook for 2017. We're increasing our 2017 core earnings per share guidance by 10 cents to now be between $9.20 and $9.40 per share, driven by a lower than expected tax rate, partially offset by higher deferred compensation expense on the higher stock price. We are reaffirming our 2017 guidance for revenue, segment margins, deliveries, and cash flow. And again, the core operating engine continues to deliver strong operating results, and we can remain focused on increasing production, driving productivity improvements, maximizing cash generation, and continued efficient deployment. With that, I'll turn it back over to Dennis for some closing comments. All right, thanks, Greg. With a strong first quarter on which to build continued momentum for the year, our team remains focused on further driving both growth and productivity. Our priorities going forward are to leverage our unique one Boeing advantages, continue building strength on strength to deliver and improve on our commitments, and to stretch beyond those plans and sharpen and accelerate our pace of progress on key enterprise growth and productivity efforts. Achieving these objectives will require a continuing clear and consistent focus on the profitable ramp-up in commercial airplane production, continuing to strengthen our defense and space business, delivering on our development programs, launching our integrated services business, driving world-class levels of productivity and performance throughout the enterprise to fund our investments in innovation and growth, and to develop and maintain the best team and talent in the industry, all of which position Boeing for continued market leadership, sustained top and bottom line growth, and to create increasing value for our customers, shareholders, employees, and other stakeholders. Now we'd be happy to take your questions. And ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question on today's conference, please press the star key followed by the digit one on your touchtone telephone. Again, it is star one for questions. In order that your question be clearly heard, we ask that you not use a speakerphone, cell phone, or phone headset. Please use your handset to ask a question. If you're on a speakerphone, please be sure your mute function is switched off so your signal can reach our equipment. Star one for questions. As a reminder, in the interest of time, we are asking that you limit yourself to one single part question. Again, star one for questions. Our first question is from Miles Walton with Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. Morning. Hey, Miles. I was wondering if uh, we could start on cash flow. Obviously, uh, a pretty pretty strong cash flow, certainly relative to your break-even expectations. And I know Greg, you alluded to the timing of receipts. Um, but if you could delve a little bit more, and it does look like you were both overperforming on operating cash flow and then also underrunning on CapEx, and it looks like on the operating line it maybe was advances. So if you just dig a little bit deeper on those points, that would be terrific. Yeah, um, I would certainly um, point to execution miles and just core performance as being the primary driver. We certainly had some timing in there. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of the productivity improvements we've talked about in the initiatives, um, starting to see that hit some of the cash flow, um, as well as the discipline efforts around working capital. And then, of course, within that 787 improvements, which you saw in deferred, but even as you look at 787 cash flow uh, as an individual item, you know, it's, it's positive and becoming more positive as we would expect with the improvements again in the step down as well as the productivity in the factory and then the mix 
And, you know, playing into that mix is the early introduction of the Dash 10, which, as you've seen, and, uh, and that is going into the production system as planned and, frankly, on, on some cases a little bit better on the unit cost. So all of that really kind of playing in, but, again, a little bit of timing. I'd, uh, I'd certainly equate it to, look, it's early, but there's certainly we're off to a good start, and we're seeing positive momentum, and we got some things to work through, obviously, through the balance of the year, but there's definitely some upward bias as we see it today. But, again, we'll, we'll keep you posted and work through uh, the elements we've got to balance through, the, you know, through, the, through uh, each of the quarters here around finishing up on tanker, getting max deliveries ramped up, and, of course, you know, selling some of the uh, 4.7 whitetails. But we know what we need to focus on in order to do that, but we're off to a good start. And yeah, Mark, just build on Greg's comments there. We're, uh, what you see here is, uh, as you said, a good start to the year, and I think consistent with our longer-term expectation for year-over-year -year cash growth. All of the elements that Greg talked about are foundational things that uh, will drive year-over-year -year cash growth through the uh, end of the decade, and we continue to see that as a, a strong focus, and the performance is bearing out. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay. Our next question is from Jason Gersky with City. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Dennis, this morning, is Jason. for you. Good morning. I was wondering if you um, could spend a few minutes uh, talking about uh, the business cases that you're building around the 737-10 uh, and the middle-of-the-market aircraft. Let's just update us on customer feedback you're getting thus far and uh, – whether you're willing to go out on a limb there and, and maybe tell us which way you're leaning at this point on either one of those. Thanks. Yeah, yeah Jason, let me, let me just give you a quick update, update on that. Uh, we're continuing to have very productive conversations with, uh, with our customers. Of course, the, uh, the uh, most near-term thing we're looking at is an a, uh, extended version or a stretched version of the 737 MAX 9, which uh, we're referring to as the MAX 10. Uh, we continue to work on closing that business case and working diligently with our customers. Uh, we see encouraging momentum there, but we still have work to do to, to finish up on the business case. And uh, we have time to complete that work and, and then make the right decision. So we're not yet to the decision point, but we are making progress and I'd say seeing uh, encouraging feedback from our customer base. Uh, all of this we're very confident can be completed within the R&D profile that uh, we've talked to you about before, so we don't see this as a, a big needle mover to our R&D profile over the uh, rest of the decade. And we do see the MAX 10 as an airplane that we could have into the market in that 2020 uh, timeframe. Uh, longer term, the, uh, the middle of the market airplane, we continue to have discussions with our customers uh, on opportunities in that space as well, working on the business case and uh, technology solutions. And again, we haven't arrived at a decision point yet. If we decide to move down that path, that's an airplane that would be uh, entering into service in the 2024-2025 uh, timeframe. Again, we don't see that as a big needle mover on our R&D profile for the rest of this decade. And uh, we have the time in place to, uh, to, again, make the right deliberate decision on that. All of these uh, potential next products feather in very nicely on our overall development plan cycle on the backside of uh, 777X, and we have the capacity and strength to do uh, one or the other or both of these if we so choose.
Our next question is from Doug Harned with Bernstein. Please go ahead. Um, yes, sir. Good morning. Morning. Um, hey, Doug. I'd like to understand two things on the related to the top line, and there are two things that seem to be kind of a flat outlook. One is the 787, and the other is defense. And on the 787, Dennis, the things you said earlier made it sound as though um, when you look out further, you see more more of a chance you would go up to 14 a month than any risk of falling from 12 a month. And I'd like to understand what could take you to 14 a month. And then on defense, you've also said in the past that you're looking at a pretty flat outlook over the next years, maybe low single-digit growth. But you've had a lot of orders um, here recently. Has your view changed at all on that? Yeah, Doug, let, let me take a cut at both of those, and then, Greg, feel free sure. to add in. Yep. First of all, if you look at 787, Doug, as you've alluded to, our, our plan is still to go to 14 a month uh, by the end of the decade, and uh, we're actively working a number of campaigns to fill out that skyline. Most of the skyline work we're doing is out in the 2020 kind of time frame. So just in our current backlog, as you know, we have nearly 700 aircraft, 787, in our firm backlog at 12 per month rate we are in very, very solid position. So what we're really looking at is, is the step up to 14 a month, uh, the timing associated with that, and then selling into that skyline. Uh, we, we're looking at a range of scenarios between the current 12 a month and 14 a month, and the specific timing around that. Our guidance for the year bounds all of the possible scenarios we see, but to your underlying point there, we're not looking at scenarios that would drop us down from 12 a month. We're very strong at that foundational level, and this is all about the timing and sequencing of stepping up to 14 a month and selling into that skyline. And uh, we're going to continue to work that hard. Regardless, we see 787 as a strong cash growth part of our portfolio. Just the fundamental productivity work at the current 12 a month rate is a significant source of cash generation over the next uh, couple of years. So that, that's how we see uh, the 787 portfolio. On the defense side, uh, you're right, we're, we're seeing some progress. Uh, we're seeing some, I'll say, uh, re-energization -ener around the defense budget. Um, we're encouraged by some of the signs on uh, building the defense portfolio and, and strengthening the defense budget in the U.S. for the future. Uh, we've seen heightened interest in a number of our product lines spanning rotorcraft, fighters, our services product lines, satellites, and that spans over into the international arena as well. And so while we haven't uh, modified our forecast or our guidance going forward in terms of growth rate, we still see defense as a, a low to moderate top-line growth opportunity. I would say generally there's an upward bias on how we see the strength of the defense business going forward, and that's backed up by what we see in a strengthening U.S. defense budget. Okay, thank you. Next, we'll go to Sam Perlstein with Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, Sam. Hey, Sam. I was wondering if you could uh, address the BCA margin a little bit more. Um, just looking at the 8.5% margin in the first quarter, it looks like it's going to be relatively steep to move up to the 95 to 10% for the rest of the year. And, and one of the things you called out was uh, some tanker pressure. And uh, still early in the process in terms of building tankers, so I'm wondering, is that going to continue? Was that, was that a further charge? Just 
address the tanker specifically, but then BCA margin in, in total. Yeah, yeah. No, within within the quarter at BCA, it was roughly about $120 million of pressure. And I think, you know, Dennis described kind of what we're working through on the tanker, which is really those in-production airplanes and getting those uh, to the point of certification, final certification, and then getting ready for delivery. That's where we had the additional cost pressure within the quarter. Um, and then we had about $20 million on the BDS side. But that, that's the real, I'll say, um, unusual item in the quarter for BCA. So if you strip that out, I think you'll see through the balance of the year continued improvement um, on the program margin side. And then obviously we've, we've got some work to do, which we know, again, what we need to do um, and around the period expense and and elements, uh, you know, within within um, whether it's fleet support or R&D through the balance of the year. So lots of moving pieces, but but that's really the standout for the quarter. Right. Do you, but do you think of that as as specific one-time item, or does that continue as you build more tankers? No, that that is that is readjusting the cost to complete the tankers within the contract. That's our that's our estimate to complete that, and that was impacted in the quarter. Thank you. You're welcome. Our next question is from Carter Copeland with Barclays. Please go ahead. Good morning, guys. Hey, morning. Carter. Um, Greg, just uh, to, to keep on that on that topic, I, I wondered if you could tell us if there were any uh, program margin revisions uh, of significance. I, I think you said improved performance on production programs, so I wondered if you just yeah. clarify that. And, and with respect to the guidance for the BCA margin, Given that 120 million, uh, you know, and, and you've, you've called out the 787 block extension, should that slip, does, does that present a risk to the low end of that guidance? Thanks. No, no, it's bounded in the guidance, as Dennis described. So, um, as we're running through those scenarios, we've taken that into consideration. So, to your point, we've we've absorbed the tanker additional tanker costs in the full year, and on the low end provision for whatever, if we make a different decision than, than what we're working towards right now. Um, on the overall program margins for the quarter, we had slight improvement across the board. Um, and uh, on 3.7 had one block extension in there. So again, I think good, very good performance across uh, all the production programs. Um, and then again, you know, I think, I think raising not only you know raising the bar as Dennis has talked about on our standards of performance, comparing ourselves um, externally in this whole global industrial champion. Again, we've got targets functionally by program, by element of cost, and we're challenging ourselves on on all aspects of that. And certainly, not all that is going to come home uh, near term, but. An added kind of element to that is changing the compensation, and you probably saw that in the proxy where we're trying to provide even more clarity right down to the to uh, all levels of management and all employees where 50% of our comp now will be free cash, 25 on core EPS, 25 on revenue, and then, of course, the long-term reflecting the same plus the TSR element. And I would kind of put that all under the umbrella of this kind of standard of performance, clarity, and understanding of, of what we need to do as a team year in and year out to drive value for our shareholders and at the same time reinvest back in the business. And so that's just another added element we brought in this year. That's great. So so just just to clarify, you had a positive revision across 
each of the single production programs in the quarter? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Next, we'll go to uh, Ron Epstein with Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Please go ahead. Yeah, hey, um, uh, good morning, guys. Hey, Ron. Dennis, Dennis, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about uh, the aftermarket strategy. You know, the long-term goal that you guys put out there was, was $50 billion. It's a, it's a big number, right, to get there from here. Um, how, do you, how do you think about you know, getting there? Is it purely organic? Is there an inorganic piece to it? And if you just shed more light on that. You bet. Hey, Ron, uh, for, first of all, I think it's important to look at the fundamental uh, marketplace that we're pursuing. We see the services market as a $2.5 trillion marketplace over the next 10 years. So there is plenty of market growth space for us. Today, depending on sector, we have a roughly a, a 7 to 9% market share of that growing, expanding market. So we have, we have plenty of market headroom to play into and leverage our OEM depth and knowledge. And uh, while $50 billion is a high bar target, it is a, uh, you know, an aspirational target we set for our team, but one that we're serious about pursuing. We see that as primarily an organic growth strategy, but it will be complemented with inorganic growth consistent with our broader uh, strategy and approach. We still see organic investment as our number one uh, growth engine. Uh, going forward, that includes additional work on our proprietary parts business, and selectively rebuilding some vertical capabilities. Uh, as you've noted, we've uh, selectively brought in some capability, uh, things like uh, building the all-composite wing for the 777X, uh, the propulsion center that we stood up in Charleston where we're building nacelles, uh, the actuation capability uh, that we have in both Portland and with the new stand-up in Sheffield as examples of building uh, targeted verticals that will further enhance our parts lifecycle business. Uh, we also see opportunities to grow modifications and upgrades, again, leveraging our um, OEM depth of knowledge and doing that across Boeing. We, we see that combined integrated services business is one way for us to leverage infrastructure, talent, and people so that we can compete in that uh, marketplace. And then thirdly, I see significant organic growth opportunity in the uh, digital aviation services arena, information-based services, performance-based logistics, in my uh, opening comments, I gave you uh, an example on, uh, on our wind solutions profile that now has more than, than a dozen uh, commercial customers covering more than 1,000 aircraft on that subscription service. Uh, we have other services that we're offering, things like our advanced health management service, which now covers uh, more than 2,200 aircraft across some 90 customers, uh, gold care maintenance and engineering services as another example. We see tremendous and compelling growth opportunities for us in that digital arena. And that is significant organic investment that we're making that's building on what is already a market-leading competitive position. Now, all of that will be augmented with inorganic growth and selective uh, acquisitions uh, in those same spaces. And uh, we've been deliberate about that, and we'll continue to selectively make acquisitions that complement our core organic strategy. That's a big focus for us. And one of the reasons we stood up the, the new uh, services business, Ron, and we go uh, fully operational with that here in the third quarter, and we will have a team understand deals leadership that is focused exclusively on growing the services business and supporting our customers. Gotcha. And, and on, on you know, a potential middle-of-the-market airplane, right, if something like that were to happen, 
is it reasonable to expect that you'd probably be more vertically integrated on that around some of the important subsystems to get that aftermarket then on you know previous models of airplanes? Yeah, Ron, the, uh, certainly the life cycle value stream of that airplane, if we uh, choose to launch it, will be an important parameter of the overall business case, so we're thinking hard about that. And again, you see that strategy already reflected in our next generation products, the 777X, for example, as more vertically integrated than its predecessors. And uh, that's a deliberate strategy going forward that allows us to provide more value to our customers and capture more of the life cycle value. Okay, that's great. Thanks a lot, Dennis. Our next question is from Rajiv Lawani with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Morning, gentlemen. Thanks for the time. Good morning. Uh, Dennis, you had a great quarter in terms of book-to-bill, even before considering seasonality at, at nearly 1.2 times or so. Do, do you think we're, we're starting to see a turn here, or is it just timing? And then what would a, would a hypothetical uh, MAX-10 do to that uh, book-to-bill that came out this year? Yeah. I think what you see here, Rajiv, is, is that still fundamentally – a very strong market, and especially when you take a look at uh, the narrow-body marketplace. As I mentioned earlier, we are more than sold out against our production ramp up to 57 a month through the end of the decade, and on top of that, we continue to see healthy order demand, uh, 198 net orders in the first quarter, and a little more than 160 of those were in the narrow-body arena. So we see heavy demand. We think the max is well-placed, and if we choose to proceed with the max 10, I think it only adds to the strength of our portfolio in the narrow-body marketplace. Uh, the wide-body marketplace, as you know, remains a, a bit more mixed, uh, but still some fundamental strength there. Our focus there is on filling out the 777 bridge over the next couple of years, and as we talked earlier, uh, filling out the skyline to 14 a month for the, uh, the 787 and, and thinking through the timing of that. Uh, we still see the wide-body market as fundamentally strong as well and a, a big replacement cycle coming at the start of the next decade. And with 787 and 777 families in particular, we are well positioned for that next wave of orders in wide bodies. And, and don't forget, over the next 20 years, we still see a total need for 30, more than 39,000 new airplanes around the globe, and we're continuing to see strong passage, passenger traffic growth in particular it's only one quarter, but 8.8% passenger growth in the first quarter of this year, again, just speaks to the fundamental strength of the marketplace. And uh, we're going to be very mindful about our rate ramp-up. We're going to do it profitably. We're going to keep supply and demand in balance. But with uh, 5,700 aircraft in backlog, we have the opportunity to continue to grow uh, cash delivery and earnings delivery uh, over the, the long term. We're going to do that year over year while we continue to invest in the future and play this as a long-term, sustained growth business, not a cyclical business. Thank you, sir. Our next question is from Kai Von Rumer with Cowan & Company. Please go ahead. Yes, thank you very much. So uh, in the first quarter, the 787 deferred amortization increased by about $100 million sequentially. And I believe, you know, at one point you'd said in the fourth quarter that you expected it to be relatively flat in the first, quarter, first part of the year. And it did it on really, you know, a weaker mix, I guess, with the Dash 10 being introduced in the mix. Maybe yeah. give us some color on, on what should happen to the trend in that deferred if you do not increase the block size. 
Yeah, I mean, Kai, it, it, we're expecting it to continue to improve. And again, it, it's really around those three fundamentals and certainly productivity, but mix. And bringing the Dash 10 in smoothly, as we've talked a lot about bringing the Dash 9 and how important that was, Dash 10 is, is very similar. And just as an early indicator, uh, we're on Unit 3 in the factory, or at least the data I have off Unit 3, and that unit cost is in line with the Dash 9 already. So, I mean, that, that kind of level of performance and really going back into the overall strategy on commonality um, in, in that design and really leveraging that technology on, on derivative platforms is, is really, we're seeing that hitting the factory floor. So those are good early indicators of, again, a smooth transition, which will ultimately help with the flow and, and the unit cost. So obviously that's a key element, getting the mix in, improved. And then, of course, the supplier step-down. So as we move into these next blocks, we've got supplier step-down as well as that favorable mix and then the productivity. So all of that, as we move through these blocks, will continue to improve. So therefore, you'll see that in the overall deferred. Thank you. You're welcome. And we'll go to Howard Rubel with Jeffries. Go ahead. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Hi, Howard. Uh, Dennis, um, your risk tolerance and mine are sometimes different. And, and as I look at sort of the variability we've seen in 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 tanker and at network and space systems, um, I'd like for you to, for a moment to kind of talk about um, how you're managing that risk. And, and, and there's two contexts. Um, one is that if we back out the R&D and the cost related to um, um, the, uh, the tanker um, and we look at commercial margins, they're, they're flattish or down a little bit. And um, yet you've got a lot of productivity in the factory, so where's that going? And then second, as you think about these, you know, as you think about ongoing and new programs, TX as one case, and new opportunities in space, how are you going to um, take some of the bumps out of the road? Yep. Hey, Howard, first of all, on, on Tanker, um, while uh, we did see cost growth in the quarter, as we noted, uh, that cost growth is, is well bounded, and it's, it's clearly in the initial production aircraft as we get to production configuration stability. And while uh, we're doing everything we can to drive that to closure, uh, just getting to uh, concurrent designs and uh, consistency in the configuration across all the airplanes has taken us a little more time than we expected. I, I will say it's very clear to us the flight testing with more than 1,600 hours is going very well. The airplane is performing. Uh, as expected, we have not discovered any new uh, technical issues and are clearly uh, converging on technical risk closure and getting to the finish line. And so while uh, none of us are happy with the, uh, with the cost growth, we're clearly converging on the program and expect to deliver those first 18 tankers. Uh, we're also making the investments for the future with the expectation that that will be a long-term profitable line for us. Uh, we know how to build that airplane and the investments we're making now to get configuration stability in the production line will produce profitability uh, for the long run. So I remain very confident in the tanker program in terms of its long-term value. We still see a marketplace there that's 400-plus aircraft, and uh, we have the right airplane for the customers. 
Now, more, more broadly, we've taken some of those lessons from our tanker program and other development programs and have rolled those into our development program excellence initiative that we've deployed on subsequent um, uh, programs. And, and we are seeing good signs of progress there. I think you see it in the MAX program, for example, uh, as that airplane is delivering uh, a little ahead of schedule and a little under budget on a good, steady uh, development program. We're seeing similar uh, great results coming out of the 787-10 and uh, that airplane getting to flight test a month uh, ahead of schedule. Uh, we're seeing similar progress on 777X and we're applying those same best practices to future programs like TX uh, as you mentioned and using some of our advanced prototyping to, to leverage that. So we, uh, we're deploying those, uh, those lessons learned and we are committed to being able to deliver development programs consistently on schedule and on cost. It's one of my uh, key focus areas at the, uh, at the corporate level. Okay, thank you. Our next question is from Rob Spingarn with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, hey, Rob. Guys, I wanted to go back to this really the tail end of Ron's question about, uh, you know, the supply chain and, and, and uh, the life cycle opportunity and, and give it your margin push to the mid-teens and competitive aircraft pricing market and, and you know, recent insourcing of certain components like wings at the Composite Wing Center, you know, which I guess is enabled by, you know, important increases in automation capability. I wanted to ask about the long-term prognosis for the Tier 1 uh, suppliers, and, and maybe I'd ask it this way. If you look at your overall business, both commercial and defense combined, what's your current make versus buy ratio, and how would we think about a target for that 10 years from now? I mean, well, roughly at the total level, it's about 60 to 70 percent outsourced in, mm -hmm. inside. Um, now maybe I'll, I'll give you my perspective, and, and then certainly Dennis will have one. But I mean, as far as you know, the tier ones go. I think it just goes back to the market. As we look at the 39,000 airplanes that are out there, and if we can continue to compete to win um, as a team, then I think you know everybody benefits as a result of that. So I think there's plenty of work out there, but we just got to stay stay focused on you know improving the overall performance and cost elements across the board and put ourselves in a position to win every time. And if we win every time, then tier one, two, three, everybody wins as a result of that. But just staying aligned and understanding, you know, where we have inefficiencies and how do we work as a team to, to, uh, to really overcome those is, is going to be the continued focus. Greg, yeah, Rob, those are the, you know, the fundamentals behind our Partnering for Success program and how we're working with the supply chain more broadly. So we are thinking through future supply chain architecture. Uh, we're engaging at the Boeing Enterprise level, not at the single program level. I think that makes us more efficient as a company, better for our supply chain as well. And uh, uh, that's going to allow us to drive productivity and cost effectiveness both inside our four walls as well as inside our supply chain. Where we need to, we will build selective vertical capability so that we can further drive costs down and value up for our customers. And in some cases, uh, we may decide to uh, create additional new sources of competition if we need to. So we are very focused about winning in the marketplace, and we'd like to do that in partnership with our supply chain, and that's the, the whole design behind our Partnering for Success initiative. As Greg said, 
there is plenty of market growth opportunity for us to all be successful. And uh, as long as we stay aligned on objective, we can, we can do that. So, so Dennis, understanding that it, it's clear that not everybody on the supply side buys into or is able to agree to a partnering for success uh, construct. So is it still fair to say that over time the make percentage will rise, even though the, the overall – I understand Greg's point. The, doll, the pie is going to get bigger so everybody can benefit, but it sounds like the portion that Boeing will do in-house will rise. That will be determined over the longer run, Rob. We certainly have the capacity to do that, and and we'll make selective decisions around that equation. Uh, you know, our decision on the 777X to build the wing in-house is, is a focused strategic decision. I announced earlier some of the other you know, vertical capabilities that we're investing in. We think those are places where we can add new value. So there will be some places where that, that work will shift to an internal make. There, there may be some other places where we might decide to go outside and, and buy. So there will be puts and takes all aligned with the strategy of being a global industrial champion and having a supply chain for the future. So that, that outcome is not predetermined, but it is an outcome that's based on partnership with our supply chain and both Boeing and our supply chain making the right investments for the future and, and uh, committing to being cost competitive for the future. Okay. Thank you both. You're welcome. And our next question is from George Shapiro with Shapiro Research. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, a couple of questions. Greg, how did period expenses and um, fleet support costs in the quarter compare to last year? And also, could you explain why the unit mo profit was so much lower than the program this quarter despite yeah. having a – 300 million benefit to defer. Yeah, yeah, no problem, George. Uh, yeah, the, the difference there, and we delivered uh, two of the uh, early builds on the 8.7, and so that certainly impacted the uh, program versus unit. And then the other element in there is we've got some end-of-line uh, NGs that are also impacting the quarter. Um, going back to the early builds just for a second, we've got we've got three left. They're sold, and we got three left to deliver, and we'll be done with those by the end of the year. So we're we're getting to the to the end game on those. But that that's really what was the moving pieces primarily in the quarter. Um, as far as uh, um, there is some puts and takes, frankly, George, around the period expense. I mean, we had a little bit better um, uh, performance around the R and D, and it really was performance in that. And then, you know, we had some movement around in in uh, in particular in fleet support. But other than that, I'd say is again, you know, they're not leaving any rock unturned and looking for opportunities to drive more efficiency, and uh, and you saw some of that in the quarter. So was the fleet support in the period a little higher than last year? I mean, or no? No, no. About, about the same. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but a little better than what we expected. And, what and we the program margin on the 787, you'd mentioned that the increased margins across across the board – you took some middle-of-the-road position based on whether you go to 14 a month or 12? On the guide. So if you look at the low end of the margin guide at BCA, we're trying to take that into consideration as a hold or, or delay in, in a 14 a month, so holding at 12. And so that's what's considered on that low end of the guide. Okay, thanks very much. You're very welcome.
Our next question is from Hunter Key with Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Good morning, hey, Hunter. Um, hi. So um, we've seen some deferrals from some, some major customers on the 3.7 side, um, you know, United, Lion Air, just name a couple. I'm sure you're still fully bridged on the max, but um, obviously we're almost there anyway. But as you think about the broader transition um, over the next couple of years, are you are some of your more risky delivery positions still double booked? Or have you kind of used up a little bit of that buffer? Yeah, hey, Hunter, we, we feel very confident in our delivery profile on uh, the 3.7 line and, and ramp up at the max. Uh, as, as you know, we're stepping up to 47 a month, then to 52 and 57, and we are oversold against that profile. And it's not unusual for us to have some shifts in our customers, in some cases deferrals and in some cases accelerations, but across the whole profile every year, we're, we're oversold against that profile. So we're very confident in the max ramp up and our ability to ramp up the 737 line overall. Max will represent about 15 to 20% of the deliveries from that line this year. And uh, flight test is going well, and we'll begin delivering uh, the max here in May. So uh, we remain very confident. Okay, thanks, Dennis. Operator, we have time for one more analyst question. And we'll go to uh, Peter Arman with Baird. Please go ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, good morning, Dennis. Greg. Morning, morning. Peter. Hey, Dennis. Uh, just you, you, talking back on BDS, um, you mentioned uh, some kind of upward bias on a couple of the, you know, kind of your key programs. Are we? Is there a way to kind of look at it as that 2017 should be kind of the, the trough and kind of the the top line and how you're thinking about it, or you know, maybe give us a just kind of a, a longer term projection how you're looking at the uh, BDS growth profile. Yeah, you know, generally, Peter, as we look at it, uh, you know, we're seeing a, a flat, uh, moderately up uh, top line on the defense business over the next five years. You know, some of this is dependent on where we end up on the U.S. defense budget. As you know, we're still under sequestration as the law of the land, and we're hopeful, and there's some signs that alternatives to sequestration are going to come through as the new baseline. But until that happens, it, it's hard to say exactly uh, what that future profile will look like. I will say what we're hearing from our customers and what we're seeing from the new administration and from the Hill are encouraging signs in terms of uh, adding robustness to the defense budget and selectively growing. You see some of that reflected in funding for our programs in particular. So and not only within the defense market writ large where we're seeing some strength, but I'll say additional strengths within some of our specific programs like the P-8, like the V-22, the Apache, and our fighter lines. And uh, we see re-emerging interest in the uh, F-18 Super Hornet, uh, as well as the Growler variant uh, domestically and internationally. So we have clear opportunities. I think we have the right products for our customers in terms of capability and value. And uh, we're in the marketplace to compete. And we have opportunities, especially if the uh, U.S. defense budget continues to strengthen. Uh, but I will put that caveat on it. We we need to see a long-term, stable, strong defense budget in the U.S. Got it. Thanks, Dennis. Ladies and gentlemen, that completes the analyst question and answer session. For members of the media, if you have a question, please press the star key followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone phone. I'll now return you to the Boeing Company for introductory remarks by Mr. Tom Downey, Senior Vice President of Corporate Communications. Mr. Downey, please go ahead. Thank you. We will continue with the questions for Dennis and Greg now. If you have any questions following this part of the session, 
please use our media relations team number at 312-544-2002. Operator, we're ready for the first question. And in the interest of time, we ask that you limit everyone to just one question, please. And first, we'll go to Julie Johnson with Bloomberg. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Good morning, morning, Julie. Dennis, um, could you just walk us through your thinking on workforce and how best to to size the company to its businesses and growth prospects? Um, Looking back since the end of 2012, I think overall headcount has has fallen by about 27,000 people. And um, for some people, especially in the Puget Sound region, this is sort of almost feeling like a mass layoff um, playing out in slow motion. Um, you know, at what point is, are, you know, are the cuts deep enough? Yeah, Julie, let me give you a little perspective on that. And I think, you know, the data you've seen over the last few years reflects the fact that we work in a very uh, competitive marketplace. And we've talked about the need for global competitiveness and uh, uh, government policies that enable competitiveness. That's why we've been pushing hard on things like XM Bank reauthorization, trade policy, tax reform policy, all things that will allow us to be more competitive. We are having to deal with a lot of competitive realities in the marketplace. And we've also committed as a company that while we compete today, we need to invest for the future. And uh, some of the tough affordability actions we've had to take have been necessary that so we can continue to fuel our R&D and our, our innovation machine for the future. So those are kind of the framing uh, statements and strategies around our, our workforce. Now, while we have had uh, workforce reductions over the last few years, we're also very mindful about doing that in a way that's respectful to our team and, and uh, continues to invest in talent for the future. So we've largely been able to leverage uh, voluntary layoffs and take advantage of natural attrition uh, rather than massive steps. So I think that uh, diligent incremental approach is the way, right way to do it. It's respectful of our team, and it's, uh, it's a way that allows us to continue to invest in the future. And while we've had you know, overall reductions, if you look at the total numbers, I think it's also re- worth reminding everyone that uh, you know, just over the last couple of years, we've hired more than 11,000 new employees. And so while we've had... Uh, net reductions overall, we continue to fill the front end of our talent pipeline, bring the best talent into the company, engage at the high school and collegiate levels, our intern programs, to make sure we're making the right talent investments for the future. So this, this is a challenging equation for us, but we take it you know, very seriously about investing in talent and treating our people with uh, respect while we drive competitiveness and fuel our future innovation. Our next question is from Doug Cameron with the Wall Street Journal. Please go ahead. Morning. I can't sound quite as chirpy as Julie, but I'll do my best. Uh, I don't remember the last time anyone asked a space question on the call, Dennis, so so let's do that for a change. Uh, There were reports in the media last week that Apple was was a potential co-investor in your small SAT program. Uh, Can you comment on that? And just given, you know, all the chatter and noise about the space business over the past two years, uh, speculation about Aerojet coming, and maybe just at a very high level, you could, uh, one, address uh, potential Apple investment, and secondly, at a high level, just, you know, how you see the the space business uh, uh, developing. Yeah. 
Well, hey, Doug, let, let me take a cut at that. And, and uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on any specific partnerships or engagements we have. We, we're, we're engaged with many, many industry partners across the, uh, the space spectrum. So rather than comment on that, let me give you just a, a little bit of framing on, on where we're headed. We do see the space business uh, broadly as a long-term growth business for us. That includes the satellite business, uh, both the satellite product lines and the services, and that plays into both the commercial and the, uh, and the defense or military marketplace. Uh, we've made investments in that area, like our 702 MP midsize bus, our SP small bus, as well as new uh, microsatellites. We're now the only company in the world that has all electric propulsion satellites on orbit serving commercial customers. And we still see significant demand for commercial communications bandwidth. And that's part of what's driving the future marketplace. And you've seen interest in that commercial bandwidth from a lot of parties. You, you mentioned uh, Apple, but there are many others who are interested in commercial bandwidth for the future. You've probably noted our recent uh, license filings uh, for Spectrum in that arena, again, for the opportunity to service a number of customer opportunities uh, downstream. So we're going to continue to selectively invest in our, in our satellites business as a growth area. Uh, we also see human space exploration as a, an opportunity for the long term. Programs like uh, the Space Launch System for NASA, our work on commercial crew, and continuing to make the right investments, uh, partnerships in the launch marketplace, uh, including our ULA uh, joint venture. All of those are important components for the future. So ho hopefully that gives you a sense. Strategically, we see space as a priority. Uh, we see it as a business growth area. Uh, that business thrives on industrial partnerships, and we're doing that across large and small companies. And uh, we also see that as a great area to attract future talent. It, it inspires uh, innovation, and it's a great way for us to draw talent into our company. Our next question is from Alwyn Scott with Reuters. Please go ahead. Hi to you both. Thank you. Um, Two-pronged question on tax reform. Um, first, I wonder if Boeing is still pressing for border adjustment tax, given the outline that we saw today from uh, the administration. And second, um, would a cut in the corporate tax rate and incentives to repatriate overseas cash make any difference to Boeing's plans for investment in the United States? Uh the answer to your uh, second question is no, because we don't have any cash offshore other than cash that supports our operations. So we're not in a, in a situation where repatriation is a is an issue or a priority. Um, broader speaking, we're a supporter of tax reform and simplifying the tax code, as well as getting the rate to a point of uh, of being able to compete on a global scale. Um, is certainly something that, that we support, and, uh, and, and again, you know, we're, we're looking for efficiency in the tax system um, as well as a rate, and we're, we're uh, working with the administration and those, and, and those that have, I'll say, the same priorities in mind to help, uh, help the administration think this through and implement it in a smooth uh, fashion. But at the highest level, we're, we're a big supporter of tax reform. It's going, to, it's going to drive jobs. It's going to drive the U.S. economy, broadly speaking, and it's going to allow us to compete in any – whether it doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you're, if you're a global company, it's going to allow you to compete um, on, a, on a global platform, and so we're supportive of that. 
Next question is from Dominic Gates with the Seattle Times. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, hey, Dominic. Uh, following up on Julie's uh, employment uh, question, uh, one of the real worries here in the Puget Sound area is, of course, the 777 rate. We already have these baked-in reductions that are coming to uh, there. Uh, and a lot of hope that that will change rests on the introduction of the 777X. And yet you've talked about um, uh, an upturn in the wide-body market happening in the early part of the next decade. And that, to me, brings up the question, how soon after 777X starts, you actually bring these rates up to what they were? Uh, you're going to be going down to delivering 3.5 a month in 2018-2019. 777X will start delivering in 2020. But how many years is it going to take before you're at seven a month? And what is the impact of that gap on employment? What is the likely impact here on the Puget Sound of that gap? Can you speak about that? Yeah, Dominic, let me, uh, let me frame that up for you. As, as you know, we're currently at seven a month, and we've already announced the plan to go to five a month in the third quarter of this year. And, in fact, we're already feathering in uh, that into the production plan and into the factory space. Uh, as we look at filling the 777 bridge over the next couple of years, and I'm talking 2018, 2019, and a little into 2020, and then building on the 777X order book that we already have in place with a firm backlog of 340 aircraft, we see that five a month as a floor through the bridge and through the transition. Uh, we'll begin introducing the 777X into final assembly in the factory in 2018, so mindful of the fact that, yeah, it goes into service in 2020, but it starts to hit the factory space in 2018. So it's important that all of the uh, the lead turns on that in terms of supply chain, factory ramp up, and the people to do the job are all in place. So when we step to the five a month uh, later this year, again, that's the floor that we see in the factory in terms of the production line, and then we'll transition from 777 to 777X over the next two to three years and then be up to full rate as we get into the new decade. Now, where we take that rate in the new decade will be dependent, again, on how well we do in that marketplace. As I said, we see a demand for more than 9,000 wide-body aircraft as we get into that big replacement cycle at the start of the next decade. We think we have the right product lineup with 787s and the 777X, so we're well positioned to take advantage of that marketplace, and we have lead time in place to tailor our production rate as we get into the new decade, depending on how well we compete and win in the marketplace. Our next question is from Patty Waldmeyer with the Financial Times. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks very much. This is a question for Mr. Muhlenberg. Um, the congressional Republican leadership just held a press conference today in which they said that the uh, one of the biggest achievements achievements, if not the biggest achievement of the first 100 days of President Trump, is deregulation. Um, are there any significant ways in which deregulation has affected Boeing in the first 100 days? Yes. Uh, just to comment on that, one, the, the overall focus on uh, deregulation and simplifying processes is one that we've been a strong proponent for. And the, uh, the administration has been very engaged uh, across government agencies and with industry to to find ideas and ways and, and opportunities to simplify and streamline. 
uh, things like FAA certification processes uh, is, is one place that we're seeing some uh, solid progress. That's helping us more efficiently work through certification on some of our new model aircraft, such as the MAX, as it's uh, going through flight test and entering into service. Uh, so we're already seeing some benefits there of uh, some of the work that's being done with the FAA. In the Defense Department, we're seeing streamlining of uh, regulations and, and contractual structures, things like uh, uh, improving the cycle time on foreign military sales, as an example, which is an enabler for us on helicopters and, uh, and fighters. Uh, we're seeing progress on things like multi-year uh, procurement programs and performance-based logistics. Uh, I mentioned some examples of that earlier. So these are things that are clearly uh, working to, uh, to our benefit uh, broadly as an industry. I think it's also worth pointing out uh, the progress on XM Bank reauthorization. To me, that's a very big step. It has a regulatory element as well as a trade element to it. But uh, for some time, uh, we have not had the XM Bank fully operating, even though it had been reauthorized by supermajorities on both sides of the hill. Uh, the fact that we didn't have a board quorum has left the bank uh, unable to execute at full volume. And uh, with the recent nomination, of uh, two board members, uh, we're hopeful that soon we'll see a fully operational board and fully operational XM Bank, and uh, not only to the benefit of Boeing, but to our 13,000-plus companies that are in our U.S.-based supply chain and other industries, XM Bank is a big enabler for jobs growth across big and small companies. So th those are a few concrete examples. We're encouraged by the progress, encouraged by the the conversations, and uh, and look forward to a continued focus in this area. My next question is from John Elstrower with CNN. Please go ahead. Morning, guys. Uh, hey, John. Hey, uh, Dennis, can you drill down on your thinking on the NMA business case? Uh, customers, particularly on the leasing side, have asked for an airplane with a cost that's effectively coming in somewhere below 70 to $75 million. You know, when you look at the combination of manufacturing, flying technology, and the aftermarket, what's the weight you're assigning to each of those levers when you're looking at the business model and getting that price tag down? Have you figured out yet how to make a profit uh, on selling a sub $75 million 797? And kind of in that same vein, when you look back on the inception of the 8-7 business model, what kind of leadership controls have you put in place at the CEO level to ensure you're getting a, uh, a realistic business plan that you know, looks like it does 15 years after you get started. Hey, John, first of all, uh, it's important that we start with the customer here. So our primary focus right now is engaging with our customers and understanding their future needs. Uh, we are looking at different uh, potential price points in the marketplace, uh, different capacities, uh, range, seat capacity, a whole range of options for our customers. So we, we haven't finalized that, nor have we finalized a, a price point for the airplane. Now, regardless of, of where we end up there and uh, whether we decide to launch, uh, in parallel, we're doing our due diligence on business case uh, opportunities. That gets into reducing development cost. This is all the work we're doing on step function reduction in development cost and, and the uh, development program excellence initiative I mentioned earlier. It gets into production cost reduction, leveraging the work that we're doing on all of our product lines today, uh, selective automation in our factory spaces as an example, all the work we're doing on second century design and manufacturing. It also gets into uh, life cycle value, 
and how we think about services. So as we think about the potential business case, we're evaluating all of those elements of the life cycle and how that can best serve our customers and best enable us to compete in the marketplace. And we're doing this together as a, as a team. Uh, to your point, uh, my leadership team across the entire enterprise, all of our functional expertise across supply chain, engineering, operations, finance, our talent pool, our businesses, all of the capabilities we have, uh, this is a shared enterprise effort as we think about how do we position the Boeing company to be a global industrial leader for our second century. And uh, the opportunity here uh, in terms of building this business case will help us in that transformation journey as well. So you can bet we're going to be diligent about that. We're going to build a business case that uh, makes sense for our company in the long term and adds value for our customers. And our decisions on whether or not we launch will be dependent on that rigorous business case. Operator, we have time for one last media question. And we'll go to uh, Jillian Rich with Investors Business Daily. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, so my question is about what specific lessons did you guys learn from the tanker issues and how they relate to, you know, the 737 MAX and the TX? Yeah, I, I think to, to put to put that in a capsule, what, what we've learned is that uh, as we think through uh, detailed design integration, where for the first time we're uh, building a mil military product highly modified in our commercial product line, we, we see huge cost advantages to bringing that capability in line in our production models. But around the edges of that, things like systems installation, wiring installation, the details that go into concurrently designing and building and how to do that most efficiently, those are the lessons that we're learning. And uh, those are now getting applied to our, our next stage of uh, development programs. Uh, again, the work we've done on Tanker, uh, while we haven't executed the development program as, as well as we would like to, it's leading to a high-value product for our customers. Uh, we're still going to deliver uh, these first 18 airplanes early in the next year. And this is going to provide long-term value to the, to the U.S. Air Force. So it's a long-term franchise program. And as we learn lessons in development programs, we pick those up and we apply them across our enterprise. It makes us better and more competitive for the future. That concludes our earnings call. Again, for members of the media, if you have further questions, please call our media relations team at 312-544-2002. Thank you.